It's your time to Ed Up with America's leading higher education podcast network, the Ed Up Experience, where we make education your business. This is Ed Up Legal with your host, Patty Roberts. She's Dean at St. Mary's School of Law, and she's going to be leading conversations about legal education in today's world. Now let's hear from your host, Patty Roberts. Hello, we're here on Ed Up Legal with Kyle McEntee. He's an attorney, public policy expert, and technologist who's nationally recognized for his role in American legal education. He's the co-founder and executive director of Law School Transparency, an award-winning 501c3 that focuses on consumer advocacy and public education about the legal profession. Hello, Kyle. Hi, thanks for having me. Oh, I'm just so excited that you wanted to be on the podcast, um, especially with the important work that Law School Transparency has been doing uh, since you were in law school, I understand. Tell us a little bit about how it got started and your journey today to today. Yeah, so my friend and I, uh, his name is Patrick Lynch. We actually co-founded the organization together in 2009, right after my first year of law school and right after his second year. But the story actually started the year before while I was applying to law school. I was having trouble choosing among schools. So I, I really had it down to three schools, University of Texas, Cornell, and Vanderbilt. I visited UT and I didn't love Austin, which makes me probably the only person in the world that at the time didn't love Austin. <laughs> Although now, now that I've been back, it actually is really quite a great place. But I found myself choosing between Vandy and Cornell and, you know, concerned that Cornell was ranked higher than Vanderbilt, but knowing that I wanted to work in the South. And at the time, US News was the best information I really had at my fingertips. Uh, and so I had a really tough time of making that choice to choose the lower ranked school, even though the price was the same. So at the admitted students weekend, Vanderbilt actually released a list of where all graduates from the class of 2007 went to work. And I just thought this was incredibly helpful. And Patrick and I got to talking and said, why don't we ask other schools to publish similar, to publish similar information? And that's when we started to look into what law schools were doing in terms of their employment data. What do they have? Like, where, what were they collecting? What was available for them to publish? And all those sorts of things. And ultimately, what we discovered and then publicized and addressed was that there's this widespread dishonest employment statistics that law schools were publishing and that the ABA was blessing. So for example, schools were able to say, you know, 98% of our graduates are employed, but that figure counted a barista at Starbucks, the same as an associate at a large firm and schools weren't disclosing that. I remember that time and um, a lot of changes have occurred. Did they, uh, were they initiated by your inquiries with Patrick? Um, yes, I mean, credit is always, broader than one or two people, right? Mm -hmm. um, but we did play a very large role in encouraging the ABA through you know, our public affairs strategy, which involves Congress, the press, general shame. Um, and those efforts definitely played a very large role in the ABA now prohibiting schools from doing those things and also requiring that schools publish significantly more detailed employment data. And so now as a result, you know, demand for law school is informed by the job market in a way that just wasn't previously. 
Absolutely. And you brought up an interesting point in your journey um, that you wanted to work in the South. And so where the graduates of Vandy worked um, was really important to you. I was surprised in reading um, Law School Transparency's 2025 vision, um, how many students actually do stay in the state where they go to law school. Um, can you tell us a little bit about what the research found when you were doing um, the 2025 vision report? Yeah, so broadly speaking, this vision is one for lower tuition, less financially stressed graduates, and a more diverse profession. And what we recognized was that to actually bring about that change that we want to see, it requires major structural change on two levels. On the one hand, the regulatory system, which is mostly the ABA, but not exclusively, is both too burdensome and also doesn't go far enough. And so the, the, the regulatory system needs to be rebalanced in a way to help schools along, to, get, to help them lower prices, to allow them to have alternative business models and the like. And then the other major structural problem is the incentives that schools face. Uh, law schools struggle to focus resources in large part because of the elephant in the room, which is the US news rankings. And really they you know, suck the air out of the room for any change. And the question, is this good for a ranking? Um, permeates everything. And it really has genuine implications on who schools enroll, how much students pay, and even how schools educate their students. I completely agree. Um, I think at, at this point, U.S. News is driving too much in legal education, um, and the questions become a little perverse relative to the value for students. Um, so when you're talking about the, the regulatory system of the ABA being in some ways too burdensome and in some ways not going far enough, what suggestions do you have from uh, or does LST have from the 2025 vision um, on how those regulations should be improved in order to um, ultimately address the lower tuition and reduced um, financial stress on graduates. And then, of yeah. course, diversity, increasing diversity. Yeah, so I think there are a few different themes that we can pull out. Um, the first one would be that we need fewer limits on innovation. And so by this, I mean, we need to remove some of the barriers that exist um, within the standards. Uh, so as I kind of mentioned before, the accreditation standards are overtly prescriptive and reflect decades of gamesmanship between stakeholders and an era where conformity constitutes equality. So instead, the accreditation standards should only include the standards necessary for a quality legal education. And so on this, more flexibility and how law schools deliver learning outcomes. Um, I would like to see a, a comprehensive review of what full-time faculty members must do and what is necessary and why to the provision of quality legal education. Um, I would like to see more flexibility in how law schools can structure their op um, operations. Uh, I think we should reconsider the library standards in light of the library's evolution to a, more of a learning commons. And then I think um, a refinement to the variance system would also go a long way for helping to see where the standards, even after those changes, can still be improved. Uh, the other theme would be more consumer protection. Um, we really need more thoughtful accreditation enhancements that can really ensure that the ABA seal of approval continues to mean something to the public. Um, now, the standards have actually greatly improved over the past decade. 
but I still think it remains necessary to kind of continue this consumer protection push. Um, and so one place in particular is that law schools really remain significantly behind other graduate degree programs in developing the, excuse me, in developing learning outcomes and assessment tools. And so when the market kind of fails to hold schools accountable, the ABA should be kind of filling the gaps through pretty narrow regulation. And really what this comes down to is people need to believe in legal education. They need to believe in the learning outcomes. And I think actually if, if people had more, um, I think if people believed more in what law schools were teaching and how they were teaching it, there would be, for example, a lot less pressure on state courts in the, with a diploma privilege. Um, people, people wouldn't be so fearful of diploma privilege if schools took learning outcomes and assessment more seriously. Um, that's a, an interesting viewpoint. We, we certainly have gone through the diploma privilege um, debates, especially during this period of the pandemic um, when the bar exam was disrupted for many of our graduates across the country um, with only minimal uh, headway made in the diploma privilege across the country. Um, our school recently went through the, the variance and substantive change process with the ABA, and, and it was considerable. Um, and it took uh, a good amount of time, and it's an investment as well. Um, what is going on in legal education right now that you see as um, evolution that perhaps should be less scrutinized by substantive change and variance proposals? Do you have particular um, thoughts in mind? I haven't seen any schools actually try for a variance on this because of the way the variance system is set up, namely that you have to be fully approved and therefore compliant with every single standard before you can get a variance. And part of the problem is that the standards themselves are overly burdensome on how a school can structure its operations. But I think looking at this, another school in Texas, University of North Texas, uh, Dallas College of Law, um, I, I worked with them when they were designing their school um, on, on a pro bono basis. It was, it was not a paid relationship. Uh, but there were a lot of choices that the school ended up having to make that drove up costs and that, and that they really would rather have not done. And there were, was formal pressure uh, from the standards themselves, but there was also informal pressure from the site visit teams. And, you know, what it comes down to is that I think embedded within the standards, and it permeates you know, dozens of standards, is that law schools have to be many research universities in and to themselves. And it just strikes me as the wrong way to approach regulation. Um, we should really be focused on the outcomes. Are you producing graduates who are competent attorneys and who are set up for success? And if you can do that, then it really shouldn't matter what your faculty do or look like or how they're composed or you know whether the faculty have a job at another law school. Um, those sorts of things really can stand in the way of novel thinking. And that, I think, limits competition in a pretty extreme way. So I completely agree with you um, that we want to have graduates who are set up for success. And 
Um, competence is certainly what we're looking for and using increased learning outcomes and assessment can help us get there. But um, would you propose less reliance on the bar exam? And if so, uh, how do you get there? How do you measure whether or not your grads are set up for success? Yeah, so I, I would propose less reliance on the current bar exam because it's not a valid measure of minimum competence. Uh, the, I, I worked on a study with the Institute for the Advancement of the American Legal System and Deborah Merritt from Ohio State uh, called Building a Better Bar. And what we concluded was ultimately that <laughs> there are particular building blocks that are necessary for minimum competence uh, and that the bar exam does not really scratch the surface on those. And so, yes, we should be less reliant, but the question is almost uninteresting because what really matters is how do you persuade the state regulators that it should be different? And our system is built on a, a two parallel tracks, which is one is there's the bar exam that tests minimum competency, and then there's law schools that kind of take care of a lot of other things. And when the regulators don't quite believe in what law schools are doing, they will then over rely on the bar exam. And I think that's exactly what's happening and has happened, you know, even in a global pandemic, it wasn't enough in the vast majority of states to overcome that presumption that law schools are not doing a good enough job. So how do we convince uh, regulators that we are doing a good enough job? I think it starts with proving to them that the learning outcomes that your schools develop or your school in particular, or other schools in general uh, develop and that they're actually empirically validated um, and not just based on tradition. I think that's a big criticism. and I think it's a valid one that curriculums uh, are not designed from the ground up. They're often a hodgepodge of what faculty want to do and then that makes it tough to to have a curriculum that someone can look at at the end of the day and say, yeah, this is something that uh, that I believe in. Um, I think looking to the Daniel Webster program in New Hampshire mm -hmm. is pretty instructive. Now, it's very difficult to scale, but it kind of shows you that when you take a ground up approach, you can get people to believe in what you're selling and then actually see outcomes be really great. Um, I, I think you're right on to um, improvements that could be made and that, that we should look to. But of course, you've also mentioned the, um, the obstacles that stand in our way, the, whether it's regulation, accrediting regulation, or um, the rankings that, uh, that would, I think, at least in the short term, play a role in what, how um, a school might be willing to deviate from historical models of legal education. Yeah, and we don't need to eliminate the U.S. News rankings to positively impact legal education. Uh, but I do think meaningful competition can unseat these rankings uh, as the benchmark for law school quality and prestige. And now, like, uh, many applicants do turn to U.S. News to help decide where to apply and attend. Um, because the rankings do turn a chaos of information, which is sometimes conflicting, into an actionable list that appears authoritative 
and valuable. And then these rankings also provide this protection, uh, a paradigm for applicants to feel like they made a sensible choice. And the fear that drives this desire is quite understandable, I think. They borrow and spend a tremendous amount of money on this inexact choice that may or may not pay off in the short, medium, or long term. And to make such a high stakes decision without the tool the entire profession seems to obsess over could reasonably feel reckless, even if it makes more sense to ignore them. And so really what we need to do is to figure out how do we exit this feedback loop? How do we make students make, but how do we allow students to feel confident in the choices that they make? And then what information do we need to provide to actually like help them feel that way? And that's really where I've been spending a lot of my time over the last few years is how do I help prospective law students need, um, how do I help prospective law students to believe that the alternatives uh, to US News will make their choice easier and better? And then on the law school side, law schools need a benchmark that validates the values and achievements that are not traditionally rewarded by stakeholders, including applicants, but of course, trustees, presidents, administrators, faculty, donors, it goes on and on in terms of, of stakeholder management. But it really comes down to schools are not rewarded for the good things that they're doing. They're rewarded for, can I get an extra point on my LSAT? Can I get an extra 0.04 on my GPA median? And if you do that, then as the dean, you're rewarded. If you don't, your rank goes down. Sometimes you get fired. Yeah, I, I think one of the big um, metrics that always is stunning to me and you touch on in, in the report is that um, the cost spent per student, you know, the amount of dollars that we're spending per student has a high value when looking at the rankings. But shouldn't it be that we as law schools try to make legal education more affordable? Um, in which case uh, efficiency and um, cost-saving measures you would think would be rewarded instead uh, when ranking according to um, you know, national ranking with other institutions. The, um, the three things you mentioned were uh, lower tuition, aiming for lower tuition as a goal, reducing financial stress on graduates and increasing diversity. Um, if you could share how law school transparency is filling the void that you mentioned about um, information for stakeholders, particularly prospective applicants, when they're trying to make a lot of uh, information, chaotic information, and, and have it mean something to them for their own personal decision. Um, share with us how law school transparency is doing that. Yeah. So. Our primary tool for prospective law students is the LST reports. And I don't know when exactly this episode's going to air, but I suspect by the time that it does, we will have actually moved the LST reports out of the LST reports and onto lawschooltransparency.com because uh, we're actually unifying all of our brands to make it easier for students to see everything that we offer. But really what our goal is with the LST reports is to help diverse and low-income students who want to go to law school navigate the admissions process, make informed choices about where to attend and how much to pay, and then also establish the skills and knowledge that will help them enter the legal profession upon graduation. And success on this really has two main elements. The first is to increase 
access to and usage of high quality information for the pre-law students, but then it's also to help increase the quality of advising by pre-law advisors at colleges and universities, at pipeline programs, and even private consulting firms. And what we're trying to do here ultimately is help students figure out which schools they should apply to and then how much they should pay, which is really why they use US News, but the information is complex and we try to figure out how can we make it just a little bit easier to digest and take action on. And to do this, it requires recognizing that there are a lot of different reasons people go to law school and people have a lot of different goals, but there are some unifying themes related to, you know, everyone has a cost and benefit that's measured in dollars. And that's something where we can really help. So in reading the 2025 vision, when you're talking about where we are today um, in legal education, it notes that the average 2018 graduate borrowed $115,481, um, that there's been extraordinary increase in tuition. It's exceeded inflation for decades. Um, and then schools are discounting tuition um, and providing scholarships to make up for some of the increased tuition costs. Is there a way to battle that nationally um, to reduce those costs for students and to those students in most instances, as your report notes, um, who are more likely to be underrepresented in the profession already, who are bearing a larger burden in a lot of instances um, of paying tuition costs? So I, th I think there's two main threads in, in that question that are in conflict. Um, the first is related to the point you make about price inequity. Um, Lessie, the law school survey of student engagements in 2016 published a report that black and Hispanic students pay more and borrow more for law school. Um, and at the time, and to this day, this bothers me in an enormous way. Uh, but, and, and it does have to do with law school scholarship policies, which is responsive in large part, although not exclusively, to US news incentives. Mm -hmm. uh, so there's that side of it. And then there's just the fact that law school costs too much, that it is priced for people who are gonna enter big law. And 80% of graduates don't go to big law. And so pricing legal education that way, it's just, it's, it's not a good thing. Um, it really does limit wealth building, mobility and happiness. Um, and those are things that we should endeavor to, to tackle. Um, but at the same time, when we talk about price paid and price inequity, we're talking about comparisons among people and it's assuming that the same amount of money is paid to the school. It's just how much does one group pay versus another? And obviously I've got a problem that we're charging black and Hispanic students more than their white counterparts, given the structural issues within our society. Um, that said, it is in some sense a rearranging 
of deck chairs on the Titanic unless we can actually bring prices down. So if we were to gain more price and up price equity, uh, black and Hispanic students would pay a little less, white students would pay a little more, and all of them together would be paying too much. And mm -hmm. so I think we have to think through how do we create the conditions necessary to bring prices down? Um, and there's some ways to do that related to incentives, uh, but there's also ways to do that related to the student loan program. Um, right now, there is an unlimited spigot for schools uh, to tap into with the federal loans and with no accountability on that other than market pressures, which don't work super well when students don't really understand the amount of debt that they're borrowing. Um, it, it, it provides an opportunity to, to bring prices down, but it also comes with great risk. And mm -hmm. so that's kind of the nuclear option, uh, one that I kind of vacillate back and forth between uh, fatalistically thinking that's the only way to, well, maybe there is another way if schools would just acknowledge their role in the cost of legal education and take ownership of it. Um, but ultimately, unless schools figure it out, at some point in time, the rug is going to be pulled out from under schools and there's going to be a lot of carnage. And is that something, um, when you look at legal education, that all things uh, being equal, you would recommend that there be a move away from this tuition driven um, operation of law schools, this high cost for law schools, would the nuclear option be something that ultimately you would support? It depends on how the legislation is written. Um, if all it does is allow banks to get back in the business of private lending, um, we'll end up likely with equity issues, we'll end up with high interest rates. And I think that could potentially have a, a a worse effect than our current system. Um, it's just, it's it's too hard to predict whether it'd be good or bad without actually seeing what the new program would look like or what changes that would be made. Well, I appreciate your um, bringing up the LSE report um, regarding Black and Hispanic students paying more for law school. Um, that's very troubling, I'm sure, to many of us. And as the dean of a Hispanic-serving institution, I, I, it's particularly um, disheartening uh, to learn that. Um, as far as increasing access to the profession for those underrepresented in it, which would include um, Black and Hispanic students, how can we um, provide resources for them so that uh, they aren't paying more for law school? Or how can law schools um, turn that around? I think acknowledging that it, it's happening at your own institution is the place to start. And I mean your generally, because I have no idea what it is at St. Mary's. Mm -hmm. um, part of the problem is we only know the national statistics. We don't have any real idea of what it looks like on a school by school basis. And I do believe that once we have school specific data, that we will end up with positive change, whether it's through market internal or regulatory pressure. Uh, one of the things that we've done as an organization uh, along with our partners on this, the Iowa State Bar Association and Lawyers Division, is relentlessly ask the ABA to track and publish price and debt data by race and gender. 
as well as to enforce its diversity standards, standard 206, against schools that higher off sorry, against schools that offer higher prices to women and students of color. And so I think what schools can do is take a look before they're regulated on this, uh, to take a look at, are they actually charging their Hispanic or black students more than they're charging their white students? And if they are, ask why, and whether the choices that are being made to cause scholarship allocations to be what they are, um, if that actually comports with the values the faculty expose. Well, I, I think that's an excellent suggestion, and I'm glad to hear that you're lobbying the ABA. That would make some real change. Um, as we're wrapping up the podcast, and I appreciate all of the insights that you've provided um, from your experience as executive director of law school transparency, but also in all the research that you're involved in um, with the Institute for the Advancement of the American Legal System and as special advisor to the Pipeline to Practice Foundation. I know this is an issue, uh, increasing diversity, that's very important to you. Is there anything we haven't talked about um, that you would like to, to share? Yeah, I think the one thing is, we also do have to look to the profession to hire differently. And right now they hire based on shortcuts that are not very helpful. And I think there's a lot of evidence that when firms and governments and any other kind of employer focus on competency when they're hiring, that it actually does a lot for diversity. And now, you know, the, the pipeline is not just about, can you get the right number of bodies in that are the right skin color or right gender, right? It's also about inclusion and equity once they're in the door. But by focusing on competency, the evidence is at least uh, with the law firms that they hire people who are more diverse and they stick around because their skill set is a better match for whatever the, the firm is looking for. Um, and so I really think it's important for important for law schools to to work with the employers that they actually do place graduates with and so for st mary's you wouldn't be focused on you know the big firms in texas you'd be focused on the smaller employers the government employers and say what is it that you're looking for and then help them devise criteria by which they can start assessing your students and other students so that way the hiring has more to do with you know ultimately the clients than what's the school's rank or what's our you know, back of the envelope understanding of the school's prestige. I think that's an outstanding recommendation to end on. I certainly appreciate the priority you place on diversity in law schools and in the profession. And personally, I'm so grateful for the transparency that law school transparency has created um, for law students since 2009. Uh, I know we use the tools whether we're at law schools or uh, students are considering applying to law schools. Um, so thank you for what you're doing. Please extend thanks to your colleagues. And I've really enjoyed our conversation. I hope that you'll come back. I'm very happy to have had this time to talk to you and I look forward to speaking again.
This has been another episode of Ed Up Legal with your host, Patty Roberts. Ed Up Legal is part of the Ed Up Experience Podcast Network, bringing you the brightest and most influential minds across higher education and beyond. Here at Ed Up, we make education your business.